Buddha's enlightenment was his awakening, his understanding, his insight into the ultimate reality, into truth with a capital T. Hey, what's going on? Welcome back here to this talk on Chitta, one that you've probably heard me give many times. It's one of my favorites. Here, Chitta meaning something like heart, mind, mind, the entire cognitive process. Recently, Stephen Batchelor has been translating it as soul, which I think is totally badass. This was also given at the Durango Dharma Center as part of a day-long I recently did on Metta Vipassana. There's some other tracks from that one. Some of them didn't come out so good. Some of them did. Hopefully you'll enjoy this one. We'll see you around. All right. Thanks for coming back. So I want to talk for a little while and do some practice um, around this, I think, very mysterious uh, term that we get in Dharma practice that doesn't really quite translate so well to English, which is this word you've probably heard before called chitta. Anybody who's done anything in that sort of Mahayana or later schools of Buddhism would notice they would call they would call it bodhicitta, awakened heart mind. And it's um I think it's a very important uh, concept to not just understand but to try to understand it in an experiential sense of what well what is chitta? And um, how do we cultivate it? So the standard translation for chitta that I find to be insanely unhelpful is mind, or sometimes heart-mind, which is a tiny bit better. Um, But again, as we find um, so many things get lost in translation, there's really no English term that really does the heavy lifting for what, what we mean by this um, experience of chitta. So we could, if we had to break it down and hyphenate it, it's sort of a, uh, the ethical, cognitive, emotional way in which we move through the world, mm. which is a little bit of a mouthful, but that's probably the most um, specific or accurate way to think about this concept of chitta. And the other thing about chitta that I think is important to remember that oftentimes gets forgotten or not acknowledged is that uh, usually the word chitta is, a, is associated in a very positive way. Uh, but chitta is not necessarily good. Greed, hatred, and delusion are also types of chitta. Uh, jealousy is a chitta. Um, fear is a type of chitta. Um, generosity, loving kindness, compassion are also types of, of chittas. So there, there's a way to think about it in terms of uh, in a mindfulness and kind of an, in a contemplative way in which we've been practicing. We could say that pretty much in all the practices today we've been developing and spending time developing wholesome or constructive or really healthy kind of chittas, chittas that, that really contribute to our sense of well-being and a sense of meaning and purpose and it has an ethical quality to it, a harmlessness a quality to it, this intention of not doing harm, this intention of generosity, of renunciation, of letting go of uh, beliefs and attitudes and behaviors that don't serve us. The one way that I like to think about it currently, because I, I think about this stuff probably more than I should, but um, 
is one of the ways that Bhikkhu Bodhi talks about it in the in the Abhidharma. There's a Buddhist uh, teaching or really a whole manual in the Pali Canon, uh, which was written about a hundred years after the Buddha died. So there's some controversy in the Theravada school about how good or relevant it is, but we'll politely put that aside for now. Um, and it's a whole manual on, on, on chitta, which is a, the manual on Buddhist psychology and understanding how these, these qualities of mind are. And one of the ways it's talked about that I think is interesting and, and helpful in, in the way we work with our experience is it's uh, sometimes described as an instrument. So chitta has an instrument-like quality, which means that what it does is it organizes other mental factors and other behaviors and and tries to bring them into into a, a, an instrument-like quality. So there's a way in which we want to be able to learn how to play. You know, like, I know that mindfulness is a good practice and have benefits. Do I know how to do it? It's like, I know that uh, a piano is an instrument, and I know that I like the way that piano sounds, but I don't know how to play one. Uh, and so when we think about developing different types of practices, whether we're doing a mindfulness practice or a metta practice or this liminal practice we just did. There's lots of practices, but they're all, they all have their own kind of instruments. They all have their own bells and whistles and strings and levers and so forth. So when we think about um, the cultivation of chitta, we want to recognize that it's much more than just how we think about things or how we value things, but it's really, can we actually... Uh, get into this process uh, of really working with our experience in a way that leads uh, leads us in the direction that we want to head. So the, the, the skillful, the wholesome, the constructive chitta is that which leads us to freedom, to understanding, to ease, and really to happiness, to really having uh, a relationship with our lives in this world that is constructive and is what we want. Um, and then the unhealthy or the destructive chitta leads in the other direction. The other thing I think that another way to flip the script on all of this stuff that I have found to be helpful as of late is that there's so much um, emphasis and usually even if you were to meet somebody on the street, even anybody that you talk to or know, who's familiar with Buddhism as a concept, usually the first thing that people associate it with is either meditation or suffering. <laughs> um, Buddhism, oh, that's that suffering. You guys do this. That's the suffering religion, right? <laughs> they believe in suffering. It's like, um, gee, you didn't read very much of the intro, did you? <laughs> and, it's, and so we, we come into the context of this, of this um, word dukkha, which I'm sure you've all been familiar with. There's another, of course fairly impossible word to translate, but uh, the sense that, that something about being here feels hard. Um, that idea that something is not quite right. And, and maybe that's actually how it is. That's what the Buddha is saying. Yeah, there's something about being a living person that seems like it's, seems like it's a little bit harder than it should be. You know? It shouldn't be this hard. And so it's not that we're trying to end that or to get rid of that or uh, sweep that aside. I think to some degree the Buddhist tradition has declared a little bit of a war against suffering or dukkha, I should say. It's not that it's a problem, it's that it's actually a blockage. It's blocking us from being happy. 
you know, you could easily reorganize the, three no the Four Noble Truths to say, there is happiness, but things get in the way. <laughs> this dukkha thing gets in the way, and if you, you know, you could flip them, you could reorder them in, in a way that was actually much more positive. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to just reflect what kind of personality the Buddha might have had. Why did he top the list with, you know, that? He could have started with happiness, actually, and the system would work just as well. But they, these things, they block us. So when we, um, like fear, anger, greed, hatred, delusion, all these words we use, they, it's not that they're bad or wrong, it's that they, they, they get in the way, they create limits. The hindrances create limits. These destructive mind states, they, 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 they block us from doing... I mean, how many times has fear kept you from doing something that you really, really actually wanted to do? A couple, two, three times, right? <laughs> Right. So it's, again, it's not that it's a problem, it's that it actually gets in the way, it impedes uh, our happiness and our well-being. And one of the things, the motivating force that really can guide us beyond this blockage is, this, is the cultivation of these, these kinds of chittas, these, um, these, uh, this ethical uh, sila quality that we all have of wanting wanting to do good in the world and not wanting to contribute to uh, the harm and the suffering of this world. Uh, understanding, wanting to understand our own minds and the ways in which we do that through meditation practice. Um, and then this sort of, I guess you could call it a philosophy or a pragmatism around just understanding, you know, the limitations of, of being human and the possibilities. But again, we oftentimes get blocked by the limit. We think of everything as a limitation, but we don't sometimes reflect on the possibilities of how, how good can people be? How good can we do? Which is really the East-West paradigm. Is, uh, in the West, and, or in the East, in the Buddhist tradition there, they're really interested and concerned with what are the causes of well-being. How good can people do? How happy can people become? Where in our kind of... Um, clinical, psychological, science-based minds, which has its own value, we're really interested in, in trying to figure out what the problem is. You know, we diagnose and we pathologize pretty much every single thing you can imagine. So when we look at human psychology and human cognitive function, we're very associated with, with the problem, what, what's going wrong and, and where does it come from. So they're very, very different ways about going about things. And for those of us who grew up and, you know, English-speaking minds and in and, and this kind of world that, that does this, it's no big surprise that that conditioning is going to show up when we sit down and close our eyes, right? It's, it's right there. This is why I think including the uh, metta practices as part of mindfulness is so good because sometimes I know that for me and for a lot of people I've worked with, is when we start to cultivate mindfulness and awareness, we just become very aware of all of this stuff. You know, and, 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 and into a sense where we're not getting necessarily some relief, maybe it's actually getting a little bit worse. Like, I knew I was kind of a crazy person, but now I'm really convinced that I'm a crazy person. And, and then that pathologizing of that, like everything becomes something that I need to fix. And so even that whole framework for going about things actually is a little bit, a little bit problematic itself. 
So I want to do this um, practice on chitta, and I want to just be able to see if you can start to um, see the mind state or the... It's uh, so hard to come up with a word for it, but just the way the experience has a kind of behavior to it. And so the three big ones that we talk about, sometimes they're actually traditionally they're called the, the three fires. And these three fires are really the fuel that drives this, what's called tanha, which is really just a, a reactivity. Is that really what happens is we react? Uh, and we react because of greed, hatred, and delusion, or really confusion, uh, and that there's, when we, when we watch the mind, and we can really start to understand that there is a way in which the mind does have its own kind of inclination or disposition towards experiences, that there's the experience of, of wanting or wanting to pull in. Um, sometimes I call it, and we'll do it in this practice, I call it waiting for something to happen. You ever do a meditation and you sit down and you close your eyes, you're like, you're waiting for the thing <laughs> to happen. Okay, I've been doing this for a little bit now. Any second now, here it comes. When, and there's a sense of impatience to that. I notice this happens to me a lot when I'm, um, I see this in my mind a lot, this is why I like to teach from this perspective, of just having to, you know, just waiting for the light to turn green. You know, or being in line at a store and like looking at the people in front of you, how many items do they have? <laughs> I'm gonna be here for like 20 minutes. That, that constant feeling of or the impatience of waiting for something to happen, the experience of being inconvenienced. And it's very low grade suffering, but it can really get to you after a while. So just being able to notice in our experience, do I. Do I feel like I'm anticipating something or am I waiting for something? Is there a, almost like I'm leaning into the next moment, like I'm pushing on a gas pedal. And the more I lean in, the farther away the moment gets, right? <laughs> you know, it's like, it's the, I, the, you get the opposite effect of, the, of what you're doing and it's very frustrating, I know. So there's that waiting for something to happen. The, the flip side of that, which I, would, I would associate that with sort of the greed chitta of the kind of, come on, gimme, gimme. Um, me and my wife have this thing we talk about when we get restless. We, we say we have the gimme gimmies. Mm-hmm. I don't even know. Just gimme gimme. Gimme gimme something. You know, I just want to have something to make this experience better or less painful or something. Give it to me. I don't know what it is, but I want it. It's like when you're looking, when you're shopping online or you're, you don't really want something, but you kind of wish you did. I don't want anything in the store, but I really wish I did, because then I could get it. Right? These experiences are very common, but sometimes we don't recognize them. We wouldn't even think to look, right? And then, of course, the flip side is, is they're waiting for something to go away. The aversion, um, the, the this needs to go. The sort of uh, impatiently waiting it out. Um, it could be a lot of different things. There's lots of situations, work situations, life situations, where we're just, I'll be happy when this is over. Mm-hmm. I'll be happy when this is gone. I'll be happy when this person stops talking. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's just like very low grade, but it's a, it's, a, it's a kind of withdrawal from our experience. There's a, a kind of a checked out 
not wanting to be in the, the anti-mindfulness moment. You're like, I am not interested in this present moment experience at all. I'm very interested in it being over. You know, it's like, I fly a lot, which will probably change soon. So I should be grateful, I guess. But it's that, you know, when the, when they, the plane lands and they, that beep, that you can get out of your seat beep, and everybody, like, springs up, like... Um, and you're at the back of the plane, you're like, you got 20 minutes, there's 120 people in front of you. And they're just like, I just, I used to be that person, and I just sit in my seat now and just like listen to my audio book. I'm like, it's going to be at least 12 minutes before I even need to stand up. And it's that waiting, that waiting, and that wanting to be out of the way. And much of our life uh, is really dictated by these two qualities. They can be very, very low grade, but they can also be... Um, they really, I think, drive, this can kind of be the engine that drives a lot of our, our dissatisfaction. Um, and a lot of times when we're trapped in that reactive state, we're also missing out on a whole bunch of other stuff that might be happening that would be really actually nice to be with. You know? I noticed this when I moved, I lived in the South for a while, and I lived in Tennessee for many years after being in the Northeast, which the people in the Northeast are, New Englanders are not known for their friendliness, and Southerners are. So I went from one extreme to the other. I'd be in line at CVS or at the grocery store and everybody would be chatting me up. And I was like, man, like, why is everybody... Nobody's in a rush. They don't care how long it takes to get through the line. They ask you all kinds of questions. And I really got to like it, but at first it was like, I was like, man, I was like, I, was like, I just want to buy my half and half and get in the car and go. Like, I don't really want to talk to any of you. <laughs> you know? And so it's just like, and I didn't realize how impatient I was until I was really in that experience where I was like, nobody is trying to go anywhere fast down in the South, which I was I really got to enjoy it, you know. And so uh, a lot of these things, I know that for me, I try to think of this as the second noble truth. I, I try to think of this as the reality of being reactive and the reality of that the reactivity in the particular moment is not being driven and dictated. It's not, the fire is not coming out of the people in the line, it's coming out of me. Mm-hmm. You know? It's so convenient to think that the problem is other people. Mm-hmm. If other people would just get their shit together, everything would be fine. Mm-hmm. Right? But we uh, don't oftentimes consider that this is, necess- this is really part of our practice. And so, as we do this practice, it's just being able to, to just recognize the mind state that is in that waiting for something to happen, that really wanting, uh, or, or in that really wanting to go away, that resistance. Uh, the, the range of the, it can be very, 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 very subtle. It can be very, very strong. But I found that the sooner I can detect it, then I can usually tune in to my experience in a way and be like, okay, well, what else? How else could I be spending this moment that might be a little bit more, you know, a little bit more in line with my values? Uh, And then the third one is, um, am I fully in touch with my experience? And that's that sort of, um, the Nibbana moment, which is a, a word that has been lost in translation and almost forgotten unfortunately, but this uh, cooling down, this uh, experience of the Third Noble Truth where the fires have been put out. And you're just, it's okay to sit here and 
do this. It's okay to be here. It's also very, uh, a lot of these ideas converge on this Nibbana moment. Sometimes it's called the deathless, sometimes it's called Nibbana, Naroda, ceasing, third noble truth, this experience of metta vipassana, this I'm, I'm here and it's okay to be here. I think Tara Brock calls it the sacred pause. It's really, I think that the wake up moment and what we're trying to cultivate in the practice is very, very ordinary. Uh, and I think that Nibbana has become such a heightened privilege, kind of maybe someday down the road uh, we'll get there. There's a really great essay, uh, if you can find it online, written by um, Ajahn Buddha Dasa called Nibbana is for Everyone. Um, and it's really, really good. He was a very controversial Thai forest monk who really went up against a lot of some of the, uh, the beliefs at the time. And really, really, he also developed a monastery called Swan Mok, some of you might be familiar with. Um, but I really think that what we're do, whether we call it equanimity, all these words kind of land there. The experience that we're hoping to cultivate in the practice I would argue is an experience that you're having much of the time, but you're not aware of the fact that you're having it. I don't think that being awake is really all that privileged of an experience. And in the more you look in the earlier Buddhist tradition, it's more spoken of that way, of this cooling off. Nibbana actually is an ancient Indian cooking term that means to have been removed from the flame. So when you take your mind off the, off the wanting and the not wanting and the confusion and the reactivity and you put it over here, it cools down. Which is really, really great because what's the word that we use for people in our culture who are like kind of easy to be around? They're cool. I like that guy. That guy's cool. Fonzie's cool. Right? It's, it's so great because I really actually think that's what Nibbana is. is you're, just, you're, you're available, you're open, you're here, you don't have a big agenda. You know, and I think that probably if you were to track your, your, if you were able to really track the moments of your day, you would probably find that there's many, many of these, but you're not really recognizing them. You know, it's, it's, it, unfortunately for us, there's a lot of us, that's where we oftentimes slip into daydream, into rumination. It's in, the, in, in the Nibonic moment, the moment we all join the Buddhist camp to get, when we actually get it, we pick up our phones and we think about the past and we think about the future. We want something more, more better to be happening.